when the elders meet on Wednesday nights. We pray for the members of the church and also pray for each other. One of the uh, regular requests that I make of the elders is that I would think differently, that I would think rightly, I would think biblically, um, that I would start from a right understanding and then draw the right conclusions. Kind of where I'm blind to my sin, I want to, I want to see that. Um, in my mind, I'm thinking primarily about assumptions. Where do I start? What assumptions do I make? Because we often just react to what we read or what we see. We just think these, make these assumptions and then we go from there. Um, and so what kind of things am I assuming about God or Christ or the church or relationships? I want to respond in right ways. So as I approach the Bible to study and read, uh, what, what assumptions am I making that I am blind to uh, when it comes to what the Bible is saying? My prayer is that I begin to see those wrong assumptions. Right, especially where I'm wrong and where I draw wrong conclusions. As I'm preparing to talk about this passage in the Gospel of Mark, I'm thinking about assumptions. Mark's writing is compact, unlike the other Gospel writers. There are many times where Mark says something without a lot of explanation. So we're left at times to make some assumptions about what Mark means by what he says. Thankfully, we have the other Gospels in the Old Testament and the rest of the Scriptures to help us fill in some of those some of those blanks and to help us form the right assumptions that we draw the wrong right conclusions excuse me about what mark says and in mark 1 1 he himself gives us the big idea that's going to focus or frame our assumptions throughout the rest of the book right the the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god that's what mark's main idea is going to be the rest of this gospel is to convince you that jesus christ is the that son of god So whatever we think that Mark leaves out, whatever assumptions we might need to make about what Mark is trying to say, we should come back to that verse, chapter 1, verse 1, that phrase to remind ourselves of the most basic assumption that Mark is making, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So whatever Mark says in this gospel, it must fit with that statement, that overall statement. We're starting a little differently this year. You may have noticed I am not Brecker-Pranica. I am not giving an overview of Mark right now. If you want the overview of Mark, Brett did preach that in December, last December. So go to the website and listen, and you will get the overview of, of Mark. Uh, the plan this year for our Sunday PM is to cover Mark in 17 weeks, if I counted right. That will be 17 different men preaching through the Gospel of Mark. So hopefully you are blessed, blessed by that. Just a few reminders then about the background to Mark as we get started here. Mark is believed to be the John Mark of Acts and of Paul and Peter's letters. He's the man that Paul and Barnabas split over and is the man that Paul would later say to bring him because he is useful to me in ministry. Mark was close to the apostle Peter and most believe that Mark is recording here what Peter had told him or was teaching him. Mark appears to be writing to a Gentile audience, so there won't be a, he doesn't tie his gospel as explicitly to the Old Testament as the other gospels do, though obviously Old Testament references are there throughout, and we will touch on several tonight. Mark writes in a simple Greek style, using short, compact sentences. Uh, His writing is described as vivid and action-packed. The gospel of Mark does not stay in one place for too long. He keeps moving 
sometimes leaving you wanting more, but he's going to move on to the next thing. Mark emphasizes action over words. Most of Jesus' teaching comes in response to some event, some question, some challenge, and that's where the teaching comes out of it. It comes out of action. Um, Several times, for instance, Mark will say that Jesus taught them, and then he just moves on. He doesn't tell us what Jesus actually taught, because Jesus in this gospel is always moving. So in Mark, we're going to learn who Jesus is primarily by or through what Jesus does. That leads some to see in Mark an emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is doing many of the things that regular human people do. He just does them better and perfectly, but he's doing a lot of the same things that you and I do and should be doing. Jesus wasn't just the teacher, he is a doer, right? He's doing lots of human type things. These opening 13 verses serve as an introduction to Mark's gospel, similar to how Uh, John 1, 1 through 18, serve as an introduction to that. Uh, Jesus doesn't speak in this introduction. What we do get here in this briefest of introductions is to who who Mark thinks Jesus is and why. In Brett's sermon in the the, uh, overview of Mark, he says that Mark presents Jesus as the promised son of man so that his audience will conclude that Jesus is the son of God. That's the whole point that Mark wants to make. He tells you in verse 1 that Jesus is the Son of God, and now the next 16 chapters are to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God. And in the humanity of Jesus, we see the promised incarnation of God. God takes on flesh, lives his life from beginning to end as a man. Jesus is God in the flesh, and that's what Mark wants you to see throughout this gospel. So here in the introduction... Mark shows his readers that Jesus is the Son of God by giving three testimonies concerning the man Jesus. These three testimonies each highlight something unique about Jesus, the man, that shows his humanity and his deity at the same time. Mark wants us to recognize Jesus' deity by emphasizing his humanity. So, Uh, Here's where I mentioned assumptions earlier. Mark doesn't give us as much in terms of explanation. He tells us what happened, leaving us to draw some conclusions as we dig through what he said. But if we keep remembering chapter 1, verse 1, then we should be able to make the right assumptions about uh, and and lead us to the right conclusions. Excuse me. The first testimony that shows us that Jesus is the Son of God is found in verses 1 through 8. And that is the prophets testify through Jesus' authority. The prophets will testify that Jesus is the Son of God by appealing to his authority. Start in verse 1. I won't read all all the eight verses just yet. 1-1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark starts in verse 1 by stating his conclusion that Jesus is the beginning of the gospel, that he is the Son of God. Everything else in this gospel supports that opening statement. Beginning carries with it uh, certain imagery, and you're not missing it if you're beginning to think of Genesis or John 1. It's not as explicitly tied to Genesis as John is, but the idea is there. Something new is happening. Something from God has come, and Jesus is the one who's bringing it. What is Jesus bringing? He's bringing the gospel, the good news. Um, not only a New Testament term, it's often used in society at large to just see the good news. The emperor has a birthday, that's good news. John, or Jesus, is going to bring that good news from God. 
Jesus is bringing the good news. It is reminiscent of Isaiah 52, 7. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. God promised to come and save his people, to save those who mourn for their sin, who long for righteousness, and Jesus is the one that's bringing that good news. Jesus has come to usher in this new age of repentance and faith, and mankind no longer has to wait for God to come. He's here, and that's what 1-1 is going to say. Verses 2 and 3. Mark makes his uh, Old Testament quote. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Mark shares this Old Testament quote. He's combining Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, verse 3, into one idea. He's saying here the promised messenger has come. This messenger will prepare the way for God. So when you see this messenger come, you can know God is right behind him. He's going to be right there. And by mixing and combining the quotes from these two prophets, I think gives us a sense that this messenger will continue or complete the work that the Old Testament prophets had done. The Old Testament prophets have proclaimed God's word, his truth, his judgments, and this messenger who's coming will finish that work, will complete that. Malachi is the last of the prophets, as you probably know. God goes silent as far as speaking through the prophets about 400 years after Malachi. Malachi 3.1 says this, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger is coming to prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord of hosts, God himself. That's who this messenger is coming to proclaim the way. So in the promise of Malachi, it is God who's coming back to his temple. God's presence was visible. In the tabernacle, you remember from your Old Testament that it's visible in the tabernacle when Israel was in the desert after leaving Egypt. God's presence is visible in the temple after Solomon built it, but God's presence hadn't been visible for a while with Israel. Malachi tells Israel that God's visible presence is returning to them. And when you see this messenger come, you know God is coming. That presence is coming. Isaiah is considered the greatest of the prophets. Perhaps he's the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. He spoke often about the coming one, the suffering servant, about the return of God. We'll find a lot of fulfillment of Isaiah in Jesus. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, is where Mark picks up the rest of what he shares from the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 5 says this, A voice of one calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So just briefly, as in Malachi, the messenger is preparing the way. This voice is preparing the way. He's calling out to Israel, get ready because the Lord, the Lord God, God himself is coming. So back to Mark, again, when you see this messenger coming, then you can know that God is coming right behind him. So who is this messenger and how does he prepare the way? Well, that's in verses 4 through 
6. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. So who is this promised messenger that's coming to prepare the way for God? It's John the Baptist. He lives in the wilderness. He's preaching to the people. He's baptizing. He dresses in a unique way and he eats some weird things. That's what John is. I'm going to highlight verse 6 first. Notice verse 6 where Mark describes John very much like Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1 where it says Elijah was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. John is meant to evoke those kind of images, that Elijah image. John is elsewhere compared to Elijah. Later in Mark chapter 9, Mark quotes Jesus as making a connection between John and Elijah. In Luke 1, when the angel comes to Zacharias to tell him that his wife's going to have a son, he's told that his son will go as a forerunner in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's John, he's coming. Taken all together, John comes as an Old Testament prophet, right? Living, working, preaching like they did, continuing, concluding their work, looking very much like they did. What is John doing? He's preaching and baptizing. That's what he's going to come to do. This is how John prepares the way for God to come. He's preaching a message of baptism where he calls on the people to repent of their sins. God is coming. Repent and be ready. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and be ready when God gets here. In his commentary, James Edwards summarizes that this baptism is the only thing necessary to prepare the people for the imminent judgment of God. It it is this baptism that's going to smooth the way before the Lord. It's going to raise the valleys and level out the mountains. It's going to get hearts ready for God to come. So the people's hearts should be ready for the Lord when he does arrive because by now they've recognized their sins, they've repented of their sins, they've turned from their sins, they've turned to righteousness. So in theory, in theory, when God comes, because of the work of this messenger, the people should be ready to hear and believe God. John is doing this preaching and baptizing in the wilderness meaning that he's not in the city where the people are. They've got to come out to him. So there's got to be something attractive about him that's drawing people out to him. In scripture, the wilderness often represents a place of repentance, a place of grace, a sense of new beginning. It was in the wilderness that Israel first met with God. In the wilderness that God gave Israel his law, that God set Israel apart as his unique people. So here... Similarly, I think the wilderness represents a place of renewal, of readiness, a place to be ready to meet with God. And that's what John's calling the people to do. Come, because God is coming, and get ready. I hope you notice already that in Mark, John has been tied both explicitly and implicitly to Isaiah, to Elijah, and to Malachi. The greatest prophet, the prophet who did not die, and the last of the prophets. So there's where John, again, I think, serves as a summary of a a continuation of those Old Testament prophets. He represents them. All of the Old Testament prophets look ahead to when God is coming to his people, and John is the one who arrives at this moment to fulfill what they've been looking for. So I think when John does or speaks something, 
he does and speaks on behalf of the rest of those prophets. He's just carrying on their work and fulfilling what they've been looking forward to. John finally speaks in verses 7 and 8. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When John speaks, he talks about the one coming after him. And if we understood the Old Testament prophecies correctly, then we understand that it is God that John is speaking of. Mark doesn't explicitly put all the pieces in place for us. Uh, He allows the story to unfold naturally, and you're to put the pieces together as you're reading, you're understanding. He He gives us all the pieces and then expects us to see it. Notice that John highlights a couple things about this coming one. He's mightier or stronger than John, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Understand mightier and stronger in terms of divine authority. If John is truly a prophet, then he speaks and acts with a lot of authority. Right? He represents God. So he gets his, when he speaks and acts, it's as if God is speaking and acting. That's the role of the prophet. He's speaking and acting on behalf of God himself. Among men, there's going to be no greater authority than that prophet. But this one coming, this one coming after him is greater authority than that. This one coming is not only going to speak and act for God, he is God. It is God speaking himself. No intermediary, no one coming between you and God. It is God coming. Using a metaphor of the day, John says he's not worthy to untie the sandals of this one coming. That loosing and washing of feet were duties of slaves, usually are only Gentile slaves. So John's audience hears that John's not worthy, they think he is the lowest of the low. That's the reference he's making. John's even below that. John is so far removed from the one who's coming, or the one who's coming is so far removed from John, that John isn't even worthy to do the least, the most menial task for this one. John also compares his baptism to the baptism of the one to come. John baptized with water, but the one to come is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Don't let that get past you too quickly, right? The one who's coming has the authority to baptize you, to immerse you in and with God's Spirit. He has the authority, this one coming, to connect you, to unite you, to tie you to God himself. John's baptism is temporary, it's earthly, it's just with water. But the one who's coming is bringing God himself with him. It would be a spiritual, a permanent baptism. That's how much greater this one is than John. So the prophets testify that Jesus is the son of God by pointing to or highlighting his authority. The prophets looked ahead to when God would send his messenger before him to proclaim that God is coming to finally bring salvation to his people. So, Whoever comes after this messenger must be God himself. This coming one does not just represent God as the prophets do. This coming one comes with his own authority, the same authority that God himself has. He comes in order to give God's spirit to those who believe. The coming one is going to be God himself. 
And Mark tells us in verse 1 that this coming one is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The second testimony that shows us that Jesus is the Son of God is found in verses 9 through 11. The Father and Spirit testify through Jesus' obedience. The Father and Spirit testify that Jesus is the Son of God by acknowledging, recognizing, responding to his obedience. Verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So here Jesus comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan, where John is baptizing people that repent of their sins and seek forgiveness. We're not told here why Jesus comes for that. He doesn't need to repent of anything as far as we know. He doesn't need to seek forgiveness for anything, but he comes and is baptized by John. Upon coming up out of the water, three things happen. The heavens are open, the spirit descends in visible form upon him, and a voice speaks from heaven. According to Jewish tradition, these three things signified the beginning of God's eschatological kingdom. The end of days has arrived when you see these three things. The heavens opened. Some translations say that the heavens were torn open. The same word will be used again in chapter 15, verse 38, when Mark's talking about the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom. So imagine the heavens are being rent open, just torn open. That's a significant thing. It's not just some clouds parted. Something big happened, right? So when the heavens are open, something supernatural is happening. Something coming from God. God wants you to notice something when he rends the heavens. And this is significant too, I think. If we, if we understand that God stopped speaking through the prophets at Malachi 400 years later, he's going to start speaking again because now the heavens are torn open and something's coming from God that we haven't heard from in a long time. In addition to the heavens opening, we see the Spirit descending visibly upon Jesus. Here the Spirit marks Jesus uniquely for ministry that will empower him and lead him in that ministry. Reminiscent of Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. The Spirit of God has descended upon Jesus in invisible form. And it is Jesus who is going to bring this good news to the poor. It is Jesus that God has sent to carry out his plans. It is Jesus who will now baptize others with this same spirit. And then thirdly, a voice came out of heaven. Mark obviously doesn't tell us who that voice is, but we're going to conclude from chapter 1, verse 1, that it's the voice of God. And the heavens just torn open, and so no one else is going to be speaking probably except for God himself. God explicitly confirms that Jesus is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. So why does he call Jesus his beloved son and why is he well pleased right now? At this moment, why, is Jesus, why does God say that? Well, I think it's because Jesus in his first public act, the first time we see him here in Mark, um, he has just obeyed the Father in being baptized. I think that's what we're seeing here and that's why God responds the way he does. And he's being baptized with this sinner's baptism. It's in Jesus' obedience that we understand him as beloved son and it's being well pleasing to the Father. Ephesians 8, or Ephesians 5, excuse me, 8 through 10. Speaking of believers, 
For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. How do we know as believers what's pleasing to God? Well, whatever is good and righteous and true, those things that mark God, if we pursue those things, then we are pleasing to God. When we do what is right, as God has defined what is right, then we're pleasing to him. When we bear fruit in every good work, when we increase the knowledge of God, we're pleasing to God. When we pursue goodness and truth, and pursue, we, are, we are pursuing then what God uh, is pleased with. And I think the same can be said then of that man, Jesus. If we as regular people pursue what is good and righteous and are pleasing, then the man, Jesus, is pursuing those same things. Isaiah 11, 2 through 5 is, in summary, will say that the one to come will have the spirit of the Lord upon him, that the one to come will delight in the fear of the Lord, that he will judge with righteousness, that he will be fair and faithful. The characteristics of the believer that please God are similar, the same as those characteristics of the one that is to come, the one that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon. In John eight twenty nine, Jesus says this of himself, and he who sent me is with me, for he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In everything that Jesus does, he obeys the Father. In everything that he does, he is well-pleasing to God. I hope you see that connection between obedience and being well-pleasing. As we obey God, we please God. If Jesus is well-pleasing to God, that tells me that he obeys God. There's an obedience to God there. So that connection is the same for us as it is for Jesus. Back to Jesus' baptism. Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus is baptized. I think we can rightly infer or assume, though, that he is being baptized with this sinner's baptism out of obedience to God, and that's why he's pleasing to him. Matthew 3.15 does give us Jesus says to John there that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I think it confirms that Jesus is seeking to obey God in everything. And so this baptism is part of that obedience. So for our purposes here in Mark, I think we can rightly assume that Jesus being baptized is Jesus being obedient to the Father, which is why he's pleased with his beloved Son. What pleases God is obedience to him. We are pleasing to him when we obey him. Likewise, again, Jesus pleases God always because he's always obeying him. By appearing here and now in this initial moment of public obedience, the Father and Spirit testify that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus proves his sonship because he obeys God and is pleasing to God in everything. The prophets have testified, the Father and Spirit have testified, and finally, the third testimony that shows us that Jesus is the Son of God is found in verses 12 and 13. The spirits testify through Jesus' suffering. We'll see various spirits, three identified here, that testify that Jesus is the Son of God in their response to his suffering. And this is one of those scenarios that Mark's going to give us that we need him to give it to us because we can't see it. You see Jesus in the wilderness, but you don't see the spiritual stuff that's going on, and Mark has to tell us what's going on. We wouldn't know any of this is happening if he didn't tell us that. So Mark is giving us insight into a spiritual struggle surrounding the human Jesus. 
Again, here's some inferences, assumptions that we need to make here too. He doesn't give us all the details, but because Mark has told us in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Son of God, our assumptions need to be made or shaped by that. Verses 12 and 13. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Three spirits and their activity. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. Satan tempts Jesus and angels minister to him. All that spiritual activity going on when Jesus heads out into the wilderness. So the Spirit sending Jesus into the wilderness. Spirit uh, sends Jesus immediately. I hope you're starting to pick up on that, that the pace of Mark. Things just happen. There's no time for rest. Jesus is baptized and now he's in, now he's in the wilderness. There's no time to celebrate or to uh, re- relax. Jesus is compelled or thrust or driven into the wilderness. The idea here is not that Jesus is resisting, but rather that God and his spirit are setting the pace or the direction of Jesus' life. It's God who sends him into the, into the wilderness at this time. There's imagery here from Leviticus 16.21 where Aaron lays his hand on a goat, symbolically placing the sins of Israel onto that goat and then sends him into the wilderness Here's Jesus carrying that out. This is the one who will carry our sins away, right? The Spirit sending Jesus into the wilderness then is an intentional, God-ordained command. Here's a sacrifice that's going to take away our sins as God intends it to. Satan tempts Jesus. Satan specifically named here, he's portrayed often in scriptures as the adversary of God. He's the one who seeks to undo and destroy all that God has put in place. That's his role. It was Satan who initially and successfully tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. It was Satan who questioned Job's love for God and put Job to the test. And it is Satan who at the end of time will seek to turn the nations against God. Yet scripture also shows us over and over that it is God who ultimately controls the extent of what Satan can do. It was God who told Satan he could only go so far with Job. And it is God who will allow Satan only to go so far in turning the nations away from him. He will eventually bind Satan for eternity. So when God declares Jesus his beloved son in whom he is well pleased, it is Satan who's going to attack. It is Satan who's going to seek to undo what God has just declared. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, again reminding us of some of that Old Testament imagery of Israel being in the wilderness for 40 days, of Moses being on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights, Elijah led for 40 days and nights to Mount Horeb. I think here the wilderness represents a place of danger, of isolation, of testing, of proving. The wilderness was a a test of faithfulness with God promising the deliverance. So here Jesus follows in those footsteps, endures the testing and suffering that he finds in the wilderness. I think we're to infer that because Mark doesn't give us all those details. I think we understand from the rest of the New Testament that this is the only time that Jesus was tempted. But it's the first time that we see it. When we see temptation in scripture, it's always a temptation to disobey or disbelieve God. So again, without Mark giving us all the information, we can 
infer something from what Mark is saying. Satan has come to try to turn Jesus away. We'll see later that Jesus is tempted in the garden the night of his arrest. He prays three times that God would take the cup from him and yet every time he lands on, yet not my will but yours be done. When the temptation comes, Jesus focuses on God and what God has promised to do and put his faith in God alone. So even in the face of his suffering, Jesus will remain obedient to God. Here in Mark is Jesus, the one who's greater than John, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, being tempted just as we are and obviously maybe beyond what we're tempted, who's going to remain obedient to God, who will be, remain the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Angels come and minister to Jesus. That third spirit that is mentioned here, Mark says they minister to Jesus while he was in the wilderness. The verb tense here suggests that the angels are ministering to Jesus the entire 40 days, not just at the end. How they minister to him is again not clear. The scriptures show us that it is angels that God uses to communicate with us. Directly with men and women telling us of God's plans that God has for us. Of tasks that men and women are to do. It is the angels who minister to humanity in times of need. And so too the angels minister to the man Jesus. Mark will mention angels five times in this gospel. Three of the, the other three of the other five, three of the other four times, are in reference to the Son of Man returning at the end of the time, at the end of at the end of days, with his angels to bring a final judgment and salvation. There's a tie here in Mark to Jesus and the angels. So in Mark, the presence of angels points to Jesus as both man and as God. They minister to him as they do to other men, and they will be seen as serving the Son of Man himself as just as they would God. So, uh, briefly here, wild beasts are mentioned also. Jesus was with the wild beasts. There's a, this is a unique and unclear phrase. Commentators aren't exactly sure what Mark means by it. Uh, it seems to me that Mark intends us to see or feel more of Jesus' suffering. It's not only that he is in the wilderness, you know, by himself and isolated, tempted by Satan, Um, who's God's adversary, he's also surrounded by wild beasts. I think this phrase suggests some of that physical danger that Jesus himself is in and maybe part of what the angels are ministering to him as, as, as part of their ministry. Taken together, verses 12 and 13 show that the involvement of the spirit, Satan and angels, that spiritual realm focusing on this moment of suffering, the spirit sending him into the wilderness to suffer, Satan being a means of Jesus' suffering or at least trying to take advantage of it, and the angels ministering to him in his suffering all highlight for us that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why they're all paying attention to him. So here in Mark, the gospel appears in person. Mark presents Jesus as the promised Son of Man, God in the flesh, so that his audience will conclude that Jesus is the Son of God. In his introduction, Mark gives the readers three testimonies concerning the man Jesus. Each of these testimonies highlights something about his humanity and his deity at the same time, I think. By showing us his his authority, the prophets testify that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Son of God. By appearing at his first moment of public obedience, the Father and Spirit testify and confirm that Jesus is that Son of God that was to come. 
by their involvement in his suffering, the spirits testify that Jesus is the Son of God. As Mark continues to write his gospel, he will continue to give evidence to this, to his opening line, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you that we see in your word your promises and their fulfillment. I pray that you would help us to see clearly and, and understand better who Jesus is and how he fulfills all that you have promised to do for us. That when we see Jesus, we're seeing you. That you promised to come and you sent your son to do that. We pray that we would rightly then apply that truth as we seek to fellowship with each other, as we pray to you, as we trust you, as we seek help in times of trouble, that we remember that you have come and you have fulfilled all of your promises to us. Whatever we're going through now, we can know that you have sent your son and given your son to us who has baptized us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.